0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Bursting down the seam to the net, back hitter. Oh, what a beautiful drag move. And I can't believe it, So I should buy now. Connor McDavid, a brilliant goal. Marner closing in to Tavares. Scores! Oh!
1: Pushes it behind his net. Rust with a turnover on the wraparound. Stuff attempt. Scores! Brian Rust! And you can lock the doors and turn out the lights! With that, we welcome you to another edition of Our Line Starts. Paul Burmeister, Keith Jones, and Patrick Sharp. I I think these two guys felt sorry for me that my only NBC podcast experience was slumming it with Chris Sims. Chris Sims (laughs) talking NFL, so... I get to talk hockey with you guys.
2: We're glad to have you here, buddy. Yeah. Welcome
1: yeah. to the big leagues. Yeah, you finally I, made it. I know. I, I don't know about seeing Jonesy without a tie and Sharpie with a hood on. Yeah. You know, I would have put a nice shirt
3: on, but I missed the shuttle from the hotel again he, for the fourth sorry time. About he definitely. was late in yeah. five weeks. Yeah, no, it wasn't his fault. Uh, Actually,
2: it was my fault. I took the shuttle again. But he's uh, Some lessons are hard. Never
3: leave For the fourth behind.
1: consecutive week, <laughs> it was your fault, Jonesy. But hey, we're here. We're starting on maybe a little late, but we'll get it done. There's always hope. A lot of season left. Maybe the fifth time we'll have uh, we, we'll all be prompt. So here's what we're looking forward to today on Our Line Starts. Some star, star players sideline. We're thinking about Pittsburgh and also Toronto. Pierre Maguire spent some time with Arizona head coach Rick Tockett. We'll check in on that. We'll also look ahead to the Hall of Fame class of 2020, considering that this year's class is about to be inducted. And coaches, creative methods of motivating. We want to tap into these two guys, what they remember about being motivated. That's a, it's a nice way of saying being called out, singled out, uh, those kind of things. But uh, as promised, the injuries, some concerns, some big-time concerns in Toronto and Pittsburgh. Let's begin in Toronto. Mitch Marner uh, is out. So let's get the exact, uh, exact wording here. We'll miss at least the next four weeks with an ankle injury. Uh, Maple Leafs in pretty good shape right now. You think they'll be able to hang on to that? Without him,
3: uh, that's a tough loss. When you look at the Maple Leafs team, they just played in Chicago a couple nights ago. Got a good chance to watch that team from start to finish. And they're already missing some key players throughout this season. Zach Hyman hasn't played a game yet. I think he's a workhorse in that lineup up front. They've done a, a good job playing seven or eight games without John Tavares, who's now healthy back in the lineup. But but Mitch Marner is one of those guys that play makes out there. He hangs on to the puck. He's always looking to create for his linemates. Uh, And he makes a big chunk of change, too, in the salary department. Mm -hmm. So you take him out of the lineup, and that's a different-looking Toronto Maple Leafs team.
2: Probably the closest guy to Patrick Kane, right, with his skill set, unique talent, uh, clearly a star in the league. So that's a big uh, pair of skates to fill for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I think they're deep enough. Having Tavares back in their lineup certainly makes them a much more Uh, competitive team. He is the captain of the team. He is a type of player like Crosby that scores a ton of goals in and around the blue paint. But Marner's ability to turn the defensive side of the game upside down for the opposition is going to be missed. So Toronto has enough depth Uh, you'd like to see Tyson Berry start to play better for them on the back end. It's taken him a little while to adjust to being with a new hockey team. I think if he gets his game going, that could alleviate some of what's missing from Marner's game.
3: And the power play is confusing to me in Toronto for some reason. It's a legitimate top 10, maybe top five power play in the league. And the numbers are struggling uh, to start the season this year, despite Austin Matthews having an on pace for a career season. I think he's on pace for 110 points right now. He's playing fantastic hockey. Uh, so Toronto's got some issues there. Keeping the puck out of the net is all ultimately going to be their goal. Um, watching them play a full 60 minutes. They have no problems creating offense. They have no problems making plays through the neutral zone in the offensive zone. They have some dangerous goal scorers. It's limiting those scoring chances against that's going to be key for them.
2: After the game the other night, you surprised they waived Hutchinson? or
3: He had a tough start in that one. I haven't watched him play all season long, but three goals on six shots uh, kind of changed that game. Uh, No doubt about that. But the second half of that game against the Hawks, it was uh, a Toronto Maple Leafs assault on Robin Leonard. 57 shots on net. Leonard making 53 saves and the Hawks get out of there. If they would have played 15 more seconds of that game, (laughs) it might have been a
1: tie game. But the Hawks win in a 5-4 shootout, uh, to say the least. Thinking about the number 15, uh, 15 years, that's a number uh, of seasons Sidney Crosby has played in Pittsburgh. Only one time has he gone an entire season, all 82 in the regular season, uh, with playing every single game. So he's going to miss some time once again. We just found out uh, you probably saw the injury on Saturday in the third period against Chicago. Lower body, it's what's being called, did not make this trip out east against the Rangers coming up tonight, which is Tuesday. Also later in the week against the Devils they've gotten used to playing well and winning without him. That's previous versions of this team. How about this year's penguins team built to, to win without Sydney?
2: Yeah, they can. And I think that's based on the historical perspective that you just gave there. Latang is also out, uh, Two major losses. I mean, Latang is such a unique player in Pittsburgh's lineup because on the back end, he is their best offensive player. He's their most physical defenseman. He's very good defensively now as well. So the combination of both guys being out of the lineup would not surprise me at all to see Pittsburgh sputter a little bit right now. I watched Crosby a couple of weeks ago live, and he was phenomenal. There was times this season, even starting when we're talking before the season started, I like Connor McDavid's the best player in the league. I watched Crosby that game, and I came away from it saying Crosby's the best player in the game wow. because of everything that he did. I mean, the way that he battled in the bat check, the way that he dominates the puck possession parts. you think that last parts. year in the
1: last couple of years? Yeah,
2: I, I mean... I was ready to hand it over to McDavid, and then after that game and seeing all the things that Crosby does so well, you know, you played up close with him, but um, so he's going to be missed. The numbers without him are remarkable to me. What the Penguins have done, but I I don't see it as something that uh, the Pittsburgh Penguins want to be uh, without uh, their best player for a little bit of time.
3: They've had injuries all season long to key players. Malkin's been out. Rust has missed a lot of time. Letang and Crosby now. Let's not forget that those guys played a ton of hockey in the last three, four, five years. Uh, Those playoff games add up, and it's no coincidence to me that that guys are starting to go down uh, in the regular season. It's a lot of wear and tear on the body, and the way Sidney Crosby plays the game, he's always in and around those tough areas. So it's a challenging injury to overcome. I know the record that Pittsburgh has without Crosby in the lineup uh, is is astonishing to me. They always seem to pull up their socks and play well. Short term, I think they can manage it. If he's out for a significant period of time, I think they're in deep trouble. They've really adopted this north south fast high energy style of play with all these injuries out there calling guys up from the minors and they're playing a quick game uh now the the attention goes to the other superstar player up front and that's Evgeny Malkin who let, take a look at his numbers when Sidney's not in the They've lineup they're, they're pretty impressive as well you, yeah you
2: uh were without Kane for a while in Chicago teams as well uh Talk about that from that perspective of being another player who's getting maybe some prime time minutes and a chance to really show what you can do.
3: It was always exciting for uh, that first game that Kaner wasn't playing because then all of a sudden you get a few more touches on the power play. The, the puck runs through you in different scenarios, but uh, you're out for three, four, five plus games without superstar players. And all of a sudden you're asking when are these guys getting healthy and coming back. There's a reason why the puck goes through Patrick Kane, Sidney Crosby, Guinea Malkin on the power play. That's who you want to have it. Uh, So I say any of these major injuries, it's a wake-up call to the rest of the team. Uh, You can sustain it for the short term, but you got to get these guys healthy for 82 games if you want to win.
2: Short term is the key, isn't (laughs) it? I, I can remember being in Colorado back in 97, the year after they had won the Cup, and we lost Sackick and Forsberg at the same time. And I'm thinking, this is not going to be pretty. And then we went on this run. Without those guys, I think we lost once in eight games when both players were out of the lineup. And it was different players picking up the slack. But we had a deep team, much like you guys had in Chicago, and also had the confidence of winning the Stanley Cup, the team that is uh, prior to that season. So there is something to be said about that. I think it plays into what's happened in the St. Louis right now Mm. with Tarasenko out of the lineup. There are some guys that have experience, championship pedigree, and they're able to sustain a really high level of play for the short term. Not sure how long they will be able to sustain that.
3: It's funny when you look at um, projecting future games with an injury, a guy out of the lineup, oh, man, this is bad shape for that team. Uh, The same can kind of be said about a team that's sputtering through the regular season. All of a sudden, they play really bad one night in a winnable game. Now you look at their upcoming schedule, they got some really tough teams coming in. Oh man, that's a recipe for disaster. I think the opposite happens. The team says, we better play. A lot better than we have lately with this good team coming in. So it's a very similar situation to the injuries. I'll be curious to see how long Pittsburgh can can kind of stay afloat without Sidney Crosby.
2: We just saw that with Arizona, right? They've been struggling to hold on to leads. They had Washington coming up. They've managed to beat the Capitals. The Blues are next on the Mm -hmm. schedule. You're thinking doom and gloom, and all of a sudden the team digs deep and finds a way to win some games that on paper does not look like they should win or even be in. Uh, they, They managed to find a way to get the job done.
1: Different kind of situation going on with stars right now. Uh, I guess, uh, no pun intended, with, with the Dallas stars and what happened after a recent loss. Uh, let's take a listen to uh, head coach Jim Montgomery and what he had to say. Uh,
4: are you disappointed with the scoring
1: at the top right now? Very
0: disappointed.
1: Are you seen signs of progress?
3: Or-
0: no. Are you? No. How do you I'm-
2: think? <clears throat> Reduce ice time, we've tried, you know. We're trying video, one-on-one sessions, all those things. But, um, you know, they, they got to decide that they want to be a difference maker. I mean, look who scored for the Jets. Right? we got really good big goals by Yanmark and Faxa, and that's our third and fourth line. How important is it with Hens out and Klingberg out for them to step up? It's really important, you know. You need your number one center, you need your number one left winger to step up and do more.
1: Was he in a good mood? How's it going for him that night, huh? Wow, we've seen that before. Same situation last year, right? Exactly. And just to kind of go back a little bit, and he, he mentioned their positions, and you all know who he's talking about, Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan. Uh, but what you just referenced last year, the team CEO in Dallas also called out the leadership. And, uh, you know, he used his own words and had his own mood with it, but it was a similar message. Is, is there a leadership problem? In Dallas?
3: Uh, it can be frustrating for a coach or general manager to watch uh, Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan play because there's times when you watch a Stars game and they're the best players in the National Hockey League. They're up and down the ice. They're making plays. They're competitive. They're hungry around the net and the numbers that they put up speak for themselves. And then there's other times when you need a big win and you don't get that same production. And it's sometimes it looks like those two players are a little disinterested in what's going on in the game. Um, the fact that this is the second year in a row that they're being publicly called out is concerning to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the good news for the Dallas stars is that they've got a ton of young players coming up through the system that have, have kind of taken that next step in their development. rope hints we heard is out of the lineup. John Klingberg's missed some time. Those are two guys that are, are taking that team over. Haskinen's another player. So, you know, I don't really know what to tell you about Ben and Sagan. I can see the frustration
1: on that coach's face, Jim Montgomery. You can tell uh, me more than, than the other guys in the studio can because you, you were teammates with them yeah, for the, the latter part of your career in the, Dallas.
3: The last thing I'll say is the fact that Jim Montgomery is going to the media and answering questions publicly right. like that tells me that this is this is the last option and that they've tried other things, the one-on-one meetings, the mm-hmm. the video sessions. They're trying to motivate these players, and it hasn't seemed to work
2: you can go to the well so often and then eventually you're going to dig so deep and down in that hole that it's going to backfire on your team too. So that's a, that's a real fine line for a head Isn't coach. It? it was actually easier for him when the CEO did it. Right. And, and not having to do it himself but you can be guaranteed that he's had numerous meetings with both players as okay. individuals before he's going to the media. If that's not the case, if he hasn't done that, then you could have a major problem. Star players, especially guys that wear letters on their jerseys, have a lot of pull in the locker room and you have to be really careful on how far you push those guys or they can not only take their own game but everybody else with them you better trust in the younger players that they are uh capable of separating themselves from those star players yeah so i would i would tell you that jim montgomery is taking a big risk here and it sounds sounds like you're not a huge fan of it oh i I'm I'm not saying that he's wrong. Trust me, I'm not saying he's wrong. I'm telling you that he better hope that the players, those two players, take it the right way. And twice in a year, Mm -hmm. their names out there. This is as a player, that is not what you want. You you want to be helped to get your game to a higher level, the level that you're capable of playing. But there's times that it can really go the other way. And this is a real risky time right now for the Dallas Stars. Very interested to see what happens here.
3: I wonder if the fact that it kind of worked last season had anything to do with with doing it again the second time. But I'm with Jonesy. That's That's a fine line you're walking, calling out star players on the team. Um, I was never really the star player of a team the way Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan were, but uh, I know I'd be a little concerned if the coach and the general manager and the team president kept using my name in the media to get motivated. I would, on, uh, I would be on notice for sure.
2: There is times, though, that teammates are seeing everything that they may be doing wrong that's on the ice, that's not what the coach is looking for, mm-hmm. where they're waiting for the coach to react as well. There's some younger players in that locker room that may be looking for more responsibility. And maybe they're making every little play, doing everything properly, and then they're watching their star players play and they're not doing what the team is supposed to be doing. So they could be at the point, and Jim Montgomery may have sensed that because he played the game. He's been around the game a long time that it was his time to step up and mm-hmm. make sure that he held everybody accountable. But normally you do that within the locker room.
1: Exactly. And
2: that's the challenge. So I have to think that he's done it within the locker room. I would be shocked if he's just bringing it out to the media after a loss against a Jets team that has some star power up front that's producing right now.
1: And Sharp, yeah, I want to draw a parallel to to you going from so many years in Chicago and being used to that locker room that won a lot at a high level, then going to Dallas and, Uh, What you thought about that change with what Pavelski is doing? I mean, Mm -hmm. he got used to a different culture that wanted a high level. Now, how do you think he feels, number one, walking into a new situation, and what can he do to help? Yeah, it's a difficult
3: situation. When you're with a team like a Joe Pavelski that you mentioned, who was with San Jose for such a long period of time and did so many of the details and little things to help that team win, Uh, he was a big part of that locker room. Now you shift Organizations, You walk into the Dallas Stars and you want to still be that same player uh, and have the same role within that locker room, but it's a completely different environment. It's not your team uh, just yet. I think Joe Pavelski is inching himself into that leadership role. Uh, there's no coincidence, in my opinion, that the team started winning games. After that 1-7, and 1-8 and eight start, when Pavelski started seeing some more ice time at the center ice position, started taking some bigger face-offs. So uh, you want to walk, uh, you tread lightly. You don't want to come in there, kick the door down and say, hey, I'm here to save the day. But uh, you, you, you observe, you see where you can help out and you try to attack it that way.
2: Yeah, and the door's open for him now too after that. So then that may play into what Jim Montgomery was doing. Corey Perry is there also, another guy that was you know, a, a heart and soul type player for the Anaheim Ducks, important player in the Olympics and one of the true stars in the National Hockey League who produced at an extremely high level and is battling back from numerous injuries. So they do have those guys sitting there watching this as well. So it's it's really uh, something that I want to continue to focus on as we move along this season because on paper, Dallas looks like they should be a very good team. Yeah. And for whatever reason, they have sputtered a couple of different, uh, different times to start this season. Yeah, they
3: can't seem to, to turn that corner. And I would just hope that Jim Montgomery is not just firing off at the end of a, an overtime loss to Winnipeg and just answering questions honestly. I hope there's a little more calculations that go into yeah. this and try to motivating those guys because uh, you call out your star players year after year, it, it could have a potential to backfire.
1: All right, Hall of Fame class, the class of 2019 being inducted this weekend. Six new members uh, in this year's class. Uh, congratulations to all of them. Let's take a big peek ahead to what could be coming next year in, in 2020 in that class. Some big names for first year eligibles, including Jerome Ginla, Marion Hosa, and Shane Doan. Mm-hmm. Uh, any thoughts? Uh, any one of those three guys come to mind as someone you would really like to see go in? All three guys were great players, great
3: competitors. Um, Huge impact on every team that they played for. I I know Marion Hossa probably better than all three of those guys, and he was a guy that you could rely on each and every night, not only just to score goals and provide offense, but to play that 200-foot game. And as a winger, a European winger, coming over to the National Hockey League, he was an extremely valuable defensive forward. Uh, One of those guys that should have been nominated for a Selkie Trophy at numerous times in his career, probably was a little overlooked in the defensive uh, category. He was great internationally. Three Stanley Cups. For me, Marion Hossa is a no-brainer Hall of Fame player. I would say the same for Jerome McGinley and Shane Doan. Everything he means to the Arizona Coyotes. I don't know if his credentials have enough to get him in. That's you know that's my issue with the Hall of Fame. Is what what is a Hall of Fame? Uh, career look like is it statistics is it what you meant to the organization is it team accomplishments is it everything rolled into one uh NHL Hockey Hall of Fame is a difficult one and
2: and really in my eyes it's about being the best player at your position for a long time and there's some interesting things that go into that criteria was Marion Hossa the best at his position while he was playing well no he wasn't there's players that he played with on his own teams that were better as far as uh being superstars in the league. Hossa was a fabulous, I wouldn't call him a complimentary player, that would be an insult. Mm -hmm. He was an impact player on a nightly basis, but he had other players around him, and I'm not sure he's winning Stanley Cups if he's the guy that had to be out there at the forefront. That being said, his career was immaculate. He did nothing wrong. Mm -hmm. He did everything right and was there at the end and was a big reason why Chicago won Cups, why Pittsburgh went to the finals when he was there, Detroit. I mean, he was involved in, for a long period of time, Stanley Cup championship runs, Mm -hmm. and some of them fell short, but he was a key contributor to those teams, and I think that's enough to get him in the Hall of Fame. You talk about guys like Claude Demieux back in the day, and you and I were talking about before we came on the air. His numbers are remarkable when the playoffs came around. He had 158 points in the playoffs. He won four Stanley Cups. He had 19 game-winning goals wow. in the playoffs. And his name is never mentioned yeah. about getting into the Hall of Fame. And to me, he was a Hall of Fame talent when the games meant the most. And that's why that I'm shocked. Yeah, I'm really surprised that his name doesn't get in there. Justin Williams, I'm not sure if he's officially retired yet. He's be three years away before you can put him in the conversation. Playoff numbers are remarkable. Yeah regular season, don't jump off the page and you can make the argument that he wasn't the best player on his team. He had Kopitar when he was winning Cups. I mean, there's other players that contributed to the team's success, but his numbers are similar to Claude Lemieux's without necessarily the peskiness and the other things, the agitation that Claude Lemieux brought to the game.
3: The Hall of Fame, for me, when I look at what makes a Hall of Famer, to me, Jerome is a Hall of Famer because there was a period of time where you could argue he was the best player in the game. Right around the the lockout of 2004, a couple years before that, a few years after, he was the prototypical power forward at the wing position, too. He would fight, he would hit, he would score, you know, 50 goals just about every season. He was a player that I looked at as, amongst his peers, his generation
1: of hockey, he was one of the best. No Stanley Cup, though. Should should that matter?
3: Uh, Not in the case for Jerome McGinnla. I don't think. I think he did enough on his own right to get himself in. Uh, if Stanley Cups and team accomplishments matter that much, then, you know, maybe those guys from Chicago, maybe I should go to the Hall of Fame. Hey. I got three Stanley yeah. Cups, but the numbers don't <laughs> back it up quite the same. So that's where you get into a difficult conversation about the Hall of Fame.
2: Again, let me Cam Neely-like. Mm-hmm. Tough, difficult to play against. Played longer than Cam Neely. Had uh, the element of... Fear that he put in the opposition because he was a guy that could drop the gloves and would drop the gloves and fight for his teammates and try to change the momentum in a game. Uh, When the game was a little bit different than it is right now, Jerome McGinley was a true competitor that was very difficult to knock out of the game. So if you bought a ticket to watch the Calgary Flames play, you watched Jerome McGinley play. You were happy that you were going to see a Flames game because McGinnell was part of that. And I think that should always play into players that you're thinking about putting into the Hall of Fame. Did they sell tickets? The, the guy that the kid that was holding the ticket to that game, was he excited that he was going to see Jerome McGinnell play that night? And I would have been excited to watch Jerome McGinnell play.
3: And I think it's unfair to hold the fact that he never won a Stanley Cup against Jerome McGinnell. I mean, right. he he made an effort. He, he left at the deadline a bunch of times. He chased that Stanley Cup towards the end of his career. He wasn't content in just staying... Uh, with one team his whole career. He wanted to win. He, he made the effort to do it, uh, fell short, but that shouldn't uh, tarnish what I think is a Hall of Fame career.
2: It's like if Marion Hossa stayed in Atlanta, mm-hmm. he was not going to win a Stanley Cup. He won the Cups at the end of his career because he was a valuable commodity that every team that felt like they could win it wanted to have on, this, on their team. Mark Recchi, very similar. And, and his th- those are two guys that I would find to be comparables. Recchi and Marion Hossa, because Recchi did so much to... You know, get himself into the Hall of Fame because of the Cups that he won, but the point production was there. He's got to be a Hall of Fame. Oh, yeah, Martin, for right? sure. Yeah. There's yeah. no doubt yeah. about that, right? No it's doubt. just a matter of time, I yeah. would hope. Yeah, I think he might even be in there.
1: It's it's interesting sitting here listening to you guys with all your years of experience playing and thinking about the Hall of Fame. About five or ten minutes ago, Sharpie, you said, the criteria frustrates me because I don't really know what it is. Yeah. And then without even thinking about it, both of you guys kind of answered it on your own terms of things that really mattered to you all the way down to, Is a little kid excited when he holds that ticket to go in? I mean, it's a non-tangible. It's not a postseason success kind of thing. uh, But I think those kind of things matter. And how in touch is the committee with those kind of feelings would have to matter a whole lot, too. Yeah, and
2: I think they are. And and Lindros is the one that really stands out to Mm -hmm. me. You had a ticket to watch the Philadelphia Flyers play. You're watching that game because Eric Lindros is playing.
1: Or I stay home to listen to you to those Flyers. Yeah, games.
2: that would be, that wouldn't be good.
1: That's not that, that's not a. You'll sleep well that that night. We've been talking about the first year eligible guys. I, I want to bring up some some of the stars, uh, some of the really good players who've been eligible for a while, uh, but are not in the Hall right now. Let's begin uh, with Alexander McGillney. What do you think? Yeah, I'd probably put him in.
3: Scored enough goals throughout his career, was counted on in big playoff games at different points, played for a number of different teams. Uh, I, re- My first thoughts of McGilney are coming over with the Buffalo Sabres and just changing the game. He was just a different player. Uh, Jones, he can probably speak to a little better than I can because you played against McGillney yep. a lot in his career. But the speed, the skill, uh, he's just playing a different game when he came over from Russia. I, I like Alexander McGilney?
2: Unique talent and scored highlight real goals. Mm-hmm. And if you were at a game watching McGilney, there's a good chance he was going to bring you out of your seats. Yeah. And people are going to cheer for what McGilney was capable of doing on the ice. He was Burray like in the way that he scored goals. Um, he was a, an extremely intelligent player on the ice as well and uh, had an outstanding career. I would have no issue with McGilney getting into the Hall of Fame. Is Rex in the Hall of Fame? I think he is. Yeah, he is. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah, I should have known is. that. Yeah, he walked There was yeah. a while there when yeah. he wasn't
1: getting in, and I thought, what
2: does he yeah. need to do to get into this? Yeah, I
1: know he's, okay, he's in there. Here's another thing to think about, and Jonesy, let's start with you this time. Daniel Alfredson.
2: An uh, outstanding player for the Ottawa Senators and drunk, uh, jumped over to the Red Wings near the end of his career. Uh, could score with the best of them. Was Marion alike in the way that he played the game at both ends of the ice. Extremely responsible player used in every situation. Um, I, I'm not 100% sure that I would put Alfredson in, but without having his numbers right mm-hmm. in front of me. What's I,
1: the biggest reason you'd...
2: I, 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 it just doesn't jump off the mm-hmm. page to me as much mm-hmm. as some other, other players that we mentioned there. But uh, as I say that, I'm, pro- I'm sure he's probably a shoe-in to get into the Hall of Fame. But for <laughs> me, it wasn't something that just... Uh, made me think, man, he's he's got to get in. But maybe that style of play, too. I appreciated the style of play, like of a Jerome McGinley or yeah. Shane Doan. Um, maybe I didn't appreciate that enough.
3: Was Daniel Alfredson a like household name, no-brainer superstar of his generation? I mean, he was an all-star multiple times. He was a great player for the Ottawa Senators. I'm not quite sure
2: I'd put him in my Hall of Fame. You know, I, I, Yeah, 441 goals is what I'm hearing, so... I mean, that's an that's a, a extremely good total, but we're not talking 600 like right. Jerome McGinley.
1: Exactly. So. And that, that's what makes it hard with any sport here. You're, you're talking about great players, mm-hmm. just to be even in the conversation. Mm-hmm. But did that great player take it to the next level? And it's, uh, it, it can be really difficult, no matter what the sport is, right. with that kind of conversation. I heard of a guy named Jeremy Roenick. Yeah. Some people call him JR. I was waiting for that name to come we, up. We were just warming up. We were warming up with the previously eligible guys. Uh, so, obviously, he's not here tonight, one of the few nights that he isn't standing right there making us all laugh and uh, doing something silly. But J.R. is a Hall of Fame candidate. What do you think?
2: I think he I think he should be in there now. I, I'm surprised it's taken this long. Uh, and I played against J.R. He was an v- extremely difficult player to play against. You game plan to slow Jeremy Roenick down. Uh, he would run over you. He would fight you if he had to. He would fight the toughest guy on the team if he had to, and then he would score a highlight real goal. He'd play with his teeth laying on the ice, his jaw broken he did he he went above and beyond the call of duty on the ice to make sure that his team had a chance to win. Mm-hmm. The, the knock is he didn't win a Stanley Cup, but you can't knock him for it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't think there's a... I don't know there's there's more than a handful of players that all the things that JR did in order to help his team win and also entertain the fans. Yeah, right.
3: That's I mean, the there's a one.
2: value to entertainment, and he's got that.
3: He was a league superstar on and off the ice for years. You see the highlights, the... The clips of him dancing at center ice, always throwing pucks to the fans. Yeah, we see it every night now. Player stick handle, scoop up a puck and give it to a kid mm-hmm. in the front row of the glass. JR was doing that long before everybody in the league was. He's always had time for the media. He was a great soundbite, uh, represented the league well. I think JR is a Hall of Famer. He's an American player as well. I think he's always going to be in the conversation as on that You know, if you put a best American-born hockey player team together, Jr. is on that team, no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that guy take take a beating in his career. Jeremy, broken faces, broken jaws, uh, played the game tough,
1: hard, and scored 500 goals. And that's really the, no no matter the sport, again, when you're talking about was a player great or was he outstanding enough to get in the hall, the one thing that comes through with respect from the former players is the toughness. Mm -hmm. And if the toughness is there and the production is there, and the entertainment value, which may or, or may not matter, depending on who you talk to, is it just the Stanley Cup, lack thereof, that's keeping him out? No,
2: I think what keeps him out is the entertainment part of it. I think he rubs some people the wrong way. Mm. And I think because he was so flamboyant, because he went above and beyond, that some people may have interpreted that as J.R. Is, wants mm. to be the show. And mm. that's, that's, listen, that's part of it with Jr. But the most important part is he cared about every one of his teammates. He cared about the fans. He stops and talks to every fan. He continues to do right. that today. But there is some people that I think have gone above uh, their call of duty to keep him out of the Hall of Fame because he was because an attention-gravitating type mm-hmm. personality that uh, did, a, did a lot to enhance the game, but at the same time looked like, in some people's eyes, it was looking that trying to draw kind of attention said, look to at himself. Me.
1: I would imagine, though, and I've only known him the three, four years I've been doing this show with you guys. You guys have known him for decades uh, as a player and as a person, but I would imagine he hasn't changed too much. And to your point about maybe some attention-grabbing people, perceiving it that way, but also nice to people, you couldn't walk anywhere in the studio or in this building with someone who bumped into JR that didn't like him. Yeah. He, he's nice to every single person. And at some point, that should matter when you're also a superstar. Sure it should.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it
1: should fly in the face for those who say, well... He was just looking for attention because the people who know him would know that other side as well,
2: right? Yeah, Sharpie sure played with him. He knows...
1: Yeah, he was uh, he was a superstar
3: in the league when I was a 20-year-old kid, and I still remember my stall was next to his Uh-oh. in the locker room. They're not the main locker room, but the the dry stall locker room where you take off your your street clothes and put on your your Under Armour stuff. And
1: any PG 13 stories you can tell? He
3: had about three stalls and half of mine <laughs> in fan mail and uh, gifts and all that stuff. So he was uh, he was very active as a superstar player, and I just had to kind of. Lean up against the corner and get changed that way. Just but, stay out of his way, or uh, I stayed out of his way as much as I could. I stayed very quiet as a twenty-year-old kid. That Philadelphia team was loaded. We had Keith Jones in the broadcast booth. I don't think <laughs> you were quite <laughs> I, calling games. I back saw you then. come well, and I
2: left and quit. That's what happened. <laughs> but yeah. you were
3: around. We had a lot of star players there. I was just happy to be there. I kept my mouth shut. There you go. Good way for a young guy to be. Mark Reckie was there. Hall of Famer. Mark Recky. Sorry, go. Rex. I should have yeah. known he was in Hall of Fame. Yeah.
2: That's yeah. my bad. We
1: corrected that. Still a long way to go here. More to come, uh, including crazy coaching stories. But first, Pierre Maguire had a chance to sit down with Arizona Coyotes head coach, Rick Tocchet.
0: Great to be visiting with Rick Tocchet, the head coach of the Arizona Coyotes. You've got a fascinating hockey story to tell. Nineteen? No, but listen, 1984 is when you started in yeah. this league. You've never been out of the league since. How you managed to persevere
4: for all these years yeah um, great league, love it. Uh, love the uh, being part of any kind of team building, whether it's as a player coach, or any capacity. Um, just a, I just love competition and uh, what, other, what other job do you want where uh, NHL hockey to be a part of that competition? Speaking of
0: competition, your first year 1984, Mike Keenan is your coach in Philadelphia. Talk about Mike and how he's influenced you and about the team in particular in Philadelphia because it was the old Philadelphia Flyer brand, wasn't it?
4: Yeah, it was. Uh, instant family when you got there. Ed Snyder, it was a family atmosphere. I know as a young kid, you felt at home. You know, you, The transition, obviously as a young kid, it, it's hard to stay in the NHL, but they really made it comfortable for you off the ice. Uh, on the ice, Mike Keenan, uh, he, he he wanted an aggressive team, very young team, uh, no excuses. Um, you know, he he drove us hard. Um, I, I think he was ahead of his time, Pierre, because um, he was one of the guys that started the forty-five, fifty-minute high-tempo practices. All the players had their own water balls. I mean, everybody usually they don't have three or four water balls now. Everybody had their their water ball with their name on it. Nutrition. He used to have a lot of team dinners, so he was ahead of his time in '84 for sure. There's a story, I don't know if it's urban legend
0: or true, but you're a Toronto boy. You go back with the Flyers one of your first times. Did he make you change away from the regular dressing room?
4: Well, I don't know. If, you know what do you do is he puts, the odd time he puts two or three of us in a different dressing room just to, to motivate us. Okay. Um, the one story, he called me in the office. He had his my jersey in, in Hershey colors, uh, the Hershey Bears of the Meyer League team. He goes, if you don't have a good game tonight, your number and name is already over there and I ended up getting a couple of fights that night and did my thing, and I never got sent down. But, yeah, that, those are just his motivational things, and, um, you know, it, it helped me down the road. I, I got to really give him a lot of credit for my career. You talk about fighting. Yeah. You were really good at it, but you could score
0: goals too. When did you know as a kid, I'm going to have to do this in order to survive in the league?
4: Yeah, probably third-year junior a little bit. was a pretty aggressive guy, and then obviously when you get to the Flyers, it was, it was not so much a badge of honor, just the way, you know, you started to be. I started to be more aggressive on the ice, and I would get in fights. And then, you know, the, the organization didn't tell you to shy away from it because it gave me more room. Obviously, the the, the building, the spectrum, it, it gets you amped up. So a lot of those fights are just because of um, the moment, the the intimidation, the, that building. Um, you know, nobody ever told me to fight. It was just, you know, it just gave me room. And then, uh, and then you start scoring goals because of it. You had a lot of guys
0: around you. Daryl Stanley was there. Dave Brown was there. But one of your good buddies, Craig Berube, yeah. was there. Can you talk about when you saw Craig hoist a cup last year in St. Louis? What you were thinking?
4: It felt unreal for him, you know. For I had I had beers with them after we beat them seven to one. I think it was at the end of the December, January. They were last place, and I remember that I was sitting with their coach staff, uh, uh, our man, Ryan too. He's a buddy of mine. We sat. He wasn't really panicking, uh, you know. All his coaches seven to one. Your last place. You're like, oh my god, what's going on here? He just said, I got to get these guys to believe in their roles. I remember he said that to me, and then. Next time I see it, you know, I mean, throughout the year, obviously, and then he's hoisting that cup, like you said. It's especially, he's a really good coach. He persevered. One of my favorite teammates of all time, like a real team guy, and that's the way St. Louis played.
0: You talk about teammates. You had two, Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, considered probably the two best players in the history of the game, along with Bob Bjorn, John Beliveau, and other
4: guys, but yeah. obviously right at the top. Talk about your relationship with Mario first. Um, you know, Pierre, if you, if you look at both of you, just a great, you know, Generational, unreal players, but they're, they're better human beings. Just great guy, Merrill Lemieux, probably the nicest guy I've ever met. Uh, doesn't like the big entourage. He um, he has a, clu- a few close friends. He likes to golf. He's just a even tempered, very generous guy. Wayne Gretzky, very generous guy. Looks after people. Never, you know, the stuff that they do behind the scenes. Like I'm, I'm not going to tell you all the stuff that do that goes unnoticed is is unbelievable so to me just to be lucky to call them my friends I'm a very blessed guy because those guys are great human beings who's a better golfer Lemieux or Gretzky uh Lemieux Lemieux I think is a he might be actually might be a two or three now he's kind of lost a little bit on his side but but uh Wayne's pretty good too you know it's it's pretty good to have like a well partial son-in-law to be Dustin Johnson so but yeah he's actually improved a lot
0: you coach with Wayne
4: what was he like as a coach you know what? Very underrated bench coach. He was really good. He kind of reminded me a little bit of Scotty Bowman. I think Scotty Bowman's the best bench coach I ever played for and seen. Um, you know, when Wayne did it, his his uh, bench bench skills behind the uh, bench were really good. Um, you know, I, I felt a lot of players would give him. Wayne didn't want players to get intimidated, but it's Wayne Gretzky, so he tried to humanize himself, like he'd like to joke around with the players. But he had a lot of fun. Probably did his best job his first year. We didn't really have a great team. I think we were 500. Um, I thought we did a nice job there. Wayne was a a big influence on me on coaching.
0: When you were traded from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, that's one of the most intense rivalries in all of sport. Forget hockey, all of sport, Pittsburgh versus Philly. How did you adjust to becoming a Penguin after all those years of animosity?
4: It was easy. I got picked. Actually, you picked me up at the airport. (laughs) I got picked up at the airport. I remember talking to you, and uh, I looked at the lineup, and I'm like – you know, you're you're looking at Hall of Famers. You're looking at a, a star-studded lineup. I get a chance to play with Mary Lemieux, Kevin Stevens. Uh, no offense to Flyers because I bled orange and black, don't get me wrong, but once I hit that dressing room and uh, knew that these guys were my new teammates and I would do anything for them uh, because I knew that was my chance to win a Stanley Cup when I looked around that locker room and saw the, the talent of players we had in that team.
0: How did you persevere after you broke your jaw and come back in the 92 Stanley Cup run?
4: Yeah, well... I mean, to be honest, I had a talk with Craig Patrick, and he said, you know, we can wire it shut and do all these things, but you're going to be out for a little bit. And I just looked at him. And I said, you know, Craig, this is my chance. You know, look at this lineup. Look at the team you have here. Um, you know, I just said, hey, listen, let's put that mask on or whatever and go for it. So, obviously, a uh, great choice for me because I get to do it. win the Stanley Cup.
0: You've won the Stanley Cup as a player. You've won it twice as a coach, an assistant coach to Mike Sullivan in Pittsburgh. How hard was it for you to leave Pittsburgh after the second
4: cup? Really hard. You know, it wasn't as clear cut. Um, You know, Arizona obviously made it worth my while. Uh, Had numerous talks with Mario. Jim Rutherford was great. Mike Sullivan. You know, probably my those coaching years probably learned more than I ever learned being under Sully that organization, which I love. Um, So it was really tough. It was tough. But I, you know, chance. You know, I don't know if I would have another chance again. Kick at the can uh, to get to to go to a team that was. uh, trying to find its own culture of some young players. So um, I took the job, and, you know, it's, it's been fun so far. How have
0: you implemented the Rick Tocket style of play in Arizona?
4: You know, I, I, you know sometimes you've got to look at your lineup and go from there, and I think we, we definitely, when I first got it, I wanted to create identity. I didn't know what our identity was. It took us about a year, a year and a half to who, where we are. Uh, we really defend the puck really well. And, uh, you know, we, had some good, we have good goaltending. Our D were good. We had some young forwards who wanted to learn how to win. Uh, so we've created that style, and, and it's hard to keep your identity because it's it's hard to win. Pierre, you know that it's really hard to win, to do the right things, to defend, uh, to transition the puck quick, to to have a middle drive. Like those are hard things to do, and that's why these great teams do it consistently. So that's something that we're working on here in Arizona. One of your first pet projects when you were coaching down in Tampa was Steven
0: Stamkos. A lot of people didn't think he could play in the league at that time you came up with a unique plan to get him uh, a comfortable situation in Tampa. Can you tell us what that was?
4: Yeah, you know, I just looked at the schedule. And regardless how he was playing or what was going on in, his, in, in, in the hockey life there, um, I was going to pick games he played, you know, whether he played two or three out of five or whatever. We got him in the gym. You know, he's was, he was, he was an 18-year-old kid, skinny kid, and uh, worked in the gym. And then it just it seemed like when he played, he had more strength. He was scoring goals. And then obviously the next year, you know, I think he end up he scoring 50 goals. He was, he was unreal. So my point to me was the development of a young kid, you can't be afraid to sit him out for the, the right reasons. Uh, you know, you can't worry about the name. You can't worry about how high he was drafted. I think you've got to worry about his development.
0: Speaking of that, the relationship with Rick Talkin and Phil Kessel, you couldn't be more different people. Why does it work?
4: Well, Phil's a, you know, he's an interesting guy. He, he, he does a lot of stuff with the rink that people don't understand. He's a very generous guy. He does like, stuff that people don't know. Um, you know, Phil's, Phil sees the game sometimes differently, and that's fine. You know, we might argue or disagree on something, but at the end of the day, you know, he respects who I am. I respect who he is. You know? um, you know, so th- I think that's why the relationship has worked out is because I understand him. Uh, yeah, is there going to be some differences? Absolutely. And I th- but I think the respect factor is there.
0: When you're in Arizona now, do you sense that your image and your brand as an organization starting to catch on with the fans?
4: Yeah, I think uh, obviously John Chica, you know, working with John uh, with the new ownership, I think they see the vision. Um, so there's not a lot of changeover. There's not a lot of panic. There's not a lot of you know, people coming and going. I think now it's a little more stable. And I think to win, you have to have st- stability, right? Um, you know, we we have a vision. What we're trying to do here, whether we win five in a row or lose five in a row, I think we're staying with a vision. Who's a better card player, you or Mark Recky? Card player, definitely me. Rex is not even my category. Uh, are... I love Rex. But <laughs> uh, Rex is not. Uh, Rex is pretty good, but he's not. He's not good. You are Mario Lemieux. Better than Mario. There's not too many. <laughs> Phil Kessel might be better than me. He's pretty good, but he's just got. He's just got more. You know. Stones, I guess. When you first came to Pittsburgh, could you believe the card games that were going on on the plane? Crazy games. Well, that's why we, we. I think it lasted a year. I think then we then we then we settled down because <laughs> it started getting crazy. I think Jimmy uh, McKenzie won a car one one year, uh, <laughs> big Big Mac. But uh, yeah, those days are over. They're they're fun though. It, it, we used to have a lot of fun. That team had a lot of fun, and and and, and, and it transpired on the ice. What was your batch
0: memory when you hoisted the cup over your head?
4: You know what? For me. Um, it was just the all the years of, you know, as a young kid watching Hockey Night in Canada, you know, you know making the NHL, you know, getting traded, um, being able to withstand some injuries or whatever it was and just be able to be with a group of guys uh, and accomplish something. I, I, as much as you're happy for yourself, my parents and my family who were there, that was awesome, just to see certain guys lift the cup. You know, we had some guys that, you know, you know, I remember some guys like, uh, you know, uh, Gillen and Mikhailik, uh, you know, Needham. These guys didn't play a lot, but we needed them at certain stretches of the game. I, I remember those guys. Even as a coach, I remember the guys that maybe don't play all the time, but they it's sometime in that playoff where you needed a guy, um, I, I, I love seeing those guys hoist the cup. Have a great time this season. Thanks for doing this, Rick. Really Thanks, appreciate bro. it. Good seeing you, buddy.
1: All right, thank you to Rick and also to Pierre. Uh, Also recently, Coyotes GM John Chaika signed to a new contract. So you look at the standings, uh, they're re-signing leadership. It appears things are going in the right direction there in the desert.
3: Yeah, I like the Arizona Coyotes. I like watching them play. I think they're on the up and up. They've got a bunch of young talent that they've accumulated over recent years and uh, sprinkled in some veteran star players, and uh, it seems to be going in the right direction. They're getting good goaltending. They're doing it all without their their best defensive defenseman in Nicholas Yarmelson who got injured early in the season. And and that's a huge hole to fill on the back end. And you look at all the pieces they have, the most important piece to me, and Jonesy knows him better than I do, is Rick Tockett behind the bench. I think he's a coach that's been around not only as a player, has done it all on the ice, but now he's uh, he's... Got a pretty good resume behind the bench as well. He's got that team moving in the right direction.
2: Reminds me a lot of what Rod Brindamore is doing Mm -hmm. in Carolina. I think they play a similar style. They fell a little bit short last year, but we're scaring a lot of teams down the stretch, winning some really important games and gaining valuable experience that I think they're using. Uh, to help uh, continue that process this year. I think Talk is a very good coach. I think he gets it. I think he understands the players, and I think that's important. But I think they've got a good team. I think they're fast. I think they're built for today's game. I think they've been blowing some leads lately because Jomerson's not out there. He is their best defensive defenseman, and uh, they've got some work to do to make up for his absence. But they're getting enough scoring and they're producing at a high rate of speed, and that's the way they play the game, with a lot of speed. So I don't see them backing off. I don't know about you.
3: No, every time I went to Arizona to play, I would leave with the same feeling like, man, this would be a great place to play (laughs) if the team was better. The team was bad for so long, but now that the team is actually winning some games and competing, looks like a playoff team
1: to me. I wouldn't be shocked if star players uh, start choosing Arizona as a destination to go to him. Rick also uh, made a pretty good point of story we've heard, but it's always a fun one to think about when Mike Keenan uh, tried to motivate him, maybe did motivate him by saying, basically saying your minor league Jersey is ready (laughs) with your number and name on it sitting right over there, uh, we're ready to send you anytime. Spark any kind of motivational stories or, or, or ways coaches try, try to get you to play better? Uh,
2: I played for Jim Schoenfeld, and I know J.R. did as well, and he's got some great stories about Shoney. Shoney was a very tough man. He was a big guy. He was an intimidating guy, and uh, we. I had some battles with him. I can remember one time with uh, Sergey Gonchar was just up from the minors. I remember Shoney in the, in the locker room saying, Sergey, do, like, uh, do you like seafood? And Sergey like, barely spoke English. You're like, what do you mean? He's like, uh, you'll be heading to Portland soon if you don't pick up your game. That was our minor league team. Uh, he had some great one-liners that he used within the locker room. And I had some great conversations with him that uh, we can laugh about now. But while they were happening, mm-hmm. uh, I'm sure I frustrated him an awful lot. Uh, one time after practice, he, he loved the the bag skate he loved to skate the guys and for those that don't know a bag skate is the only the reason that term is used is the pucks stay in the bag. They're not coming out. You're not touching a puck. You're not moving the puck. You're skating, and that's all you're doing stop and starts. And it can be phys- uh, pretty physically demanding. So at the end of one of those, I was laying on the ice and I was looking up at the seal and kind of doing like a snow <laughs> angel, you know, just kind of like this. And he comes over, What's wrong with you now? You know, and I said, I'm, I'm exhausted. And he said, uh, oh, What? I go, Yeah, I'm exhausted. Your, your practices are too hard. I'm telling him, he's going, okay, hold on, everybody in. Brings the whole team and all the players, right? Jonesy, we've been losing some games this time. He goes, Jonesy says it's getting a little tough. So he says, uh, we're going to take it easy the next few practices, right? So I'm like, yeah, good, that sounds great to me. We proceed to lose the next two games, and now we're playing in Tampa. It's an afternoon game at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm walking in the rink going, man, I got to start, I got to pick it up, right? So as soon as I get to the rink, I'm one of the first guys there. There he is waiting for me. He goes, hey, uh, son, step into my office. And like I said, he's an intimidating guy. So he sat on the chair across from me. I'm sitting right here, and he's looking at me, and he says, uh, you be me, and I'll be you. And I'm like, "Well, oh, this is not going to go well, this is all I'm thinking. <laughs> he goes, Oh, I'm tired. My hands hurt. Uh, I can't move out there. I'm, I'm slumping, and I'm like so. He does his whole spiel, and then Shoney. One of his uh, traits was he'd he would he he would uh, he'd stand up and give you a fist. Right? He wasn't. He was way ahead of his time. Yeah. From the germ thing, you know, this is before <laughs> people were doing the fist bump. So anyway, he would stand up. So I stood up after he just absolutely verbally assaulted me using. He pretended it was my voice, and uh, <laughs> so I got up. I said, "Don't worry you about it, him. son. You'll come out of it like this and give him the big fist." pumpy girls, get them. <laughs> I thought he'd appreciate that. Oh, that no, no? was funny. We can laugh now, but we had uh, we had some good, it's some good solid yeah. role playing right there. Oh yeah, way to go.
3: Yeah, coaches that had to motivate me the most were uh, working for the same team. My rookie year in Philadelphia, Ken Hitchcock was the head coach of the Flyers, And I spent two, three years in the minor league system with John Stevens and the Philadelphia Phantoms, and uh, I still owe John Stevens a great deal to helping me become not a, only an American League all-star, but an NHL player. He turned me into an NHL player, uh, and it wasn't easy. He was very hard on me every day, and I was probably an easy target, fresh out of college, 20 years old. I'd show up to the rink a minute before I was supposed to, You know, right out of bed, no breakfast, hair, mess, clothes, wearing pajamas the night before, uh, I missed the weigh-in a few times. He used to have me weigh in and then r- report to his office and tell him what the number was. We had video sessions one-on-one. It was a tough uh, couple years playing for John Stevens, and I felt like he didn't like me at all. And in a playoff series, we were up three games to zero against the Chicago Wolves in the championship uh, of the minor minor hockey, the American Hockey League championship, the final series, about to win the whole thing in game four. And after pregame skate, I got into my car and there was a, like a, a note, like a thank you note on my steering wheel of my car. And it was Johnny had got into my car while we were out in practice, or the trainers did, I don't know how it got in there. And I'll save you the details of what it said, but it was basically Johnny, I'll paraphrase saying, I was so hard on you for a reason. Um, and it's incredible the strides you've made as a player, as a hockey player, and, and as a person off the ice, and, and now you're going to be a champion because of it. And yeah. I went into that game four with two goals and an assist, and we won the championship, but I never played harder before in my life. That's so, awesome. So that's, Stevens, a, that's a anyway. great story. Two questions. Yeah. Do, do you still have the note? I do have it, yeah. do, you, do you lock your car now? <laughs> it was locked. I think the trainers got my keys, but I have that note. I carried it around with me. Uh, basically, my whole career. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I never had a coach do that to me. I had Shoney tell me you've been traded, and he, <laughs> and he smiled when he said it to me. So that was about the best thing I ever had.
1: I think he lied to us. He said he used to come to the rink with the, with his hair all messed up. Yeah, I believe the no breakfast part. It's not. I possible. don't know. I don't know. I think he just couldn't. try to slide that one he in. He looks
2: like that. that when he rolls out of. Yeah, yeah. right. That's
1: right. Looks like that when he shows up late to the podcast, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, again. Guys,
1: that was good. Fun hanging out with you. I I, I want to share one thing, one final note before we sign off, thinking about Dallas once again. During the taping of, of this podcast, Jim Montgomery did tell the media he was emotional after the loss, and that prompted those comments about Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan. Montgomery also added he apologized to the team as well for what he said about his two stars. Regardless, a situation to follow going forward in Dallas. And before he said that, you guys both said, you got to be careful when you call up stars like that. Listen to
2: the podcast and find out. (laughs) This should come out earlier, right? A little (laughs) late,
1: buddy. Maybe, uh, (laughs) Maybe we'll have one extra member of the audience, a head coach. We shall see. That's it for this episode of Our Line Starts. Remember, a new episode will drop every Wednesday. Subscribe for automatic downloads wherever you get your podcasts. And we hope you spend time with us next time.